Welcome to episode 65 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Mitchell Zexter, an emergency medicine resident at Albany Medical Center, as well as the AEM RSA Medical Student Council Western Regional Representative and AEM RSA Past Vice Chair of the Education Committee, speaks with Dr. Gregory Paddock, an Assistant Professor and Assistant Clinical Director for the Department of Emergency Medicine at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. Today, Drs. Zexter and Paddock discuss traumatic ocular emergencies. Good morning. My name is Mitch Zexer. I am the Western Regional Representative of AAM RSA. I have the distinct pleasure to be sitting here with Gregory Paddock. He is a former optometrist who uh, was looking for new challenges and experiences to help a broader range of patients. He is currently an assistant professor at Texas Tech Health Science Center at El Paso, Texas. Thank you, Dr. Paddock, for coming here today and chatting with us. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Awesome. So the topics today, we wanted to talk about ocular emergencies and how we as emergency physicians can help patients with ocular complaints. Given that Dr. Paddock has such an extensive background uh, with eyeballs, I thought he would be the perfect person to chat about it. So as a former optometrist, do you have a preference on how you perform ocular exams and what should we know about it? I think, especially with uh, the early learners of emergency medicine or anybody in medicine, uh, when when you're um, you know learning a new uh, sort of approach or or uh, or how to approach certain complaints in the emergency department, the best way to do it is systematically. You know, just have a systematic approach of how you do it, so you're not missing some of the important things. Uh, So, apart from just taking a history, which is obviously where you'd start with the with patients when they come into the to the emergency department. When you're approaching your exam, you know, try to do it as systematically as you possibly can so you're not forgetting things. So the first thing that you should do, if there's not an obviously emergent complaint you need to intervene on, uh, would be good, get a good visual acuity on both eyes of, of the patients. You can uh, obviously test them monocularly initially, and then uh, you can check both eyes together. You know, most medical records you will know, have uh, you know, OD or right eye, OS, left eye, and then both eyes together. Uh, and when you have a nurse that's doing that, that's usually how they're going to put it in. It's not uncommon, though, for a patient to get seated in an exam room, and that's not been done. And so uh, if you've got a card, sh- it's not a bad idea to carry around a visual acuity card, know how to use it, know what distance to set it out when the patient uh, is, um, you know, when you're assessing their visual acuities. Uh, there's phone apps for it as well. One of the lectures here at AAM yesterday actually had, it was a great, you know, it was for, uh, um, it was an, uh, a lecture about medical apps. Uh, and there's actually an app, a free, there's several free apps that you can actually uh, get for visual acuity um, that you can, you know, download on your phone. But that's where you start uh, because before you start checking pupils and blinding them with bright lights with a slit lamp exam, you want to assess their visual acuity. So don't blind them right off the bat. Another trick as far as visual acuity goes is uh, having a pinhole occluder available to you. Mm-hmm. So if people have, you know, visual issues that they use glasses for and they don't bring them with them, using a pinhole occluder will help you assess their visual acuity a little more accurately. And then even sometimes people that, uh, that are my, you know, nearsighted or myopic, sometimes a near point card is an easier way to assess their visual acuity. After you do that, then you can shine as many bright lights in their eyes as you want. So, you know, check their pupils next. 
you know, you might check, uh, you want to check extraocular motilities to make sure both eyes are moving the right, the, the correct way. You know, they don't have any uh, motor deficits. Once you've done that, you know, it's not a bad idea for you to check confrontation visual fields, you know, just to make sure they don't have an obvious defect. And it's not a very sensitive test. It's, let's, let's put it this, you're only going to pick up very, very gross visual field defects when you're checking confrontation visual fields. And then once you do that, just get a general look at the patient. You know, don't go straight to a slit lamp exam. Look at the patient first so it's that way you can focus your slit lamp exam once you're actually sitting down at the, at the slit lamp to evaluate the patient's eyes. Apart from that, you know, those steps as you go through them uh, should allow you to do a good assessment before you're actually looking at the eye so that you're not missing something obvious. And a lot of times, obviously, your exam is going to be guided by your history. You know, so if somebody was grinding on metal and they've got a foreign body in their eye, you know, you don't necessarily have to check confrontation visual fields on them or even extraocular motilities. But if you've got a, a visual complaint or an eye complaint where you really don't know what's, what's going on with the patient, then it's a good idea to just have that systematic approach. Excellent. I think I'll be starting to use computational visual fields in my exams because I don't think I've ever done that in the past. <laughs> uh, I definitely use the Snellen chart, obviously, right. and I, you know, check to see if they have good peripherals, but haven't done a computational visual field. Oh, I was just going to say the, you know, most of the time that's going to be on your patients that have visual complaints or, or have some type of neurologic complaint, you know, where you want to assess. And the other thing that it might be uh, useful for you is in somebody you're concerned might have a retinal detachment. Because someone who has a you know a large uh, visual defect in or a field defect w related to a retinal detachment, it might give you a clue into what's going on with them. Awesome, that's a uh, really really great advice. You know, I recently did an ophthalmology rotation, and that was based off of my experience of seeing so many patients in the emergency department with all these interesting ocular complaints. One of the tools though that I used was my ophthalmoscope, and I wasn't really great at using it. And so I went on this ophthalmology rotation thinking that the ophthalmologist is going to teach me how to use the ophthalmoscope and I'm going to be the best at doing fundoscopic exams. And I get there and they say, yeah, I'm never using this. I don't even know where mine is. We don't have one in the office. So I wanted to ask you as an optometrist, uh, do you have any recommendations on how to use an ophthalmoscope? Because I don't think I'm alone in uh, not being super facile at this instrument. Right. So, you know, as, as emergency physicians, it's really about the only tool that we have available to us in the emergency department to look in people's eyes. The problem is, though, is that it's not a very easy tool to use. And when you're using it, it gives you so much magnification in a monocular, in just a monocular view that it doesn't allow you really to see all that much within inside the eye. When you're looking with the with a direct ophthalmoscope, you you may just see a portion of the optic nerve, and that's it. And trying to do it and look through an undilated pupil is difficult at best. And so, I think people are are more and more admitting that, yeah, when I use this, I'm really not seeing anything. If you are going to try to use it, you know, ideally try to use it on a pupil that's been dilated pharmacologically. But yeah, I, I don't use it, to be honest with you. And, you know, even when we have neurology consults that come down, you know, and they try to try to evaluate, you know, the optic nerve, I don't think that they're getting good views of it either. And like your ophthalmologist said that you're working with, he doesn't even use it. You know, optometrists and ophthalmologists, when they are evaluating the fundus and the post, you know, posterior aspect of the eye, they're going to be using a non-contact fundus lens and the slit lamp uh, because it just gives you such a better view of the uh, of the fundus, of the nerve, the vessels, and really, yeah, the the direct ophthalmoscope. Even though that's the tool that we have at our disposal, it really isn't all that useful. So of of you know, medical students and residents that just are not good at it, don't worry about it too much because it's just a, a difficult tool to use. And to be honest with you, it doesn't really give you all that much good information, especially if you're not able to get a good view. If you're using it to look at the nerve and looking for papilledema, I think the ultrasound is actually a more, is more useful 
and is probably better at picking up papilledema than your exam would be with a direct ophthalmoscope. That's great to hear because I uh, became pretty privy with the uh, ultrasound probe and I try to scan everyone's eyeballs. So it's great to hear that uh, yourself feels that the ultrasound is probably a better tool. But that doesn't mean I'm going to stop using my ophthalmoscope. I'm trying to get better at it. I want to get really good at fundoscopic exams, even if it might take me forever. Sure, I understand. I, uh, I actually wanted to ask you, are there any very scary eye complaints that we should be aware of that actually aren't scary? So, for example, I, uh, I saw a patient who had very chemotic eyeballs. And when I came in to see the room, at first I was like, what's going on with this patient? Is this their main complaint? And it wasn't. It was just their eyes were super dry because they had ectropion and their uh, eyelids were drooping, so they weren't able to lubricate it well. Do you have any other examples where a complaint may look scary, but maybe it's not? You know, I talked yesterday at AEM about uh, several traumatic ocular emergencies, and there, there certainly are a few things that, that have sort of time-sensitive interventions. But when you're actually evaluating patient, the vast majority of eye complaints that come in, even if they look scary, probably aren't true emergencies. A lot of the medical complaints, like even retinal detachments, really bad infectious processes that look, that, that look ugly or sound bad based on the, the patient's chief complaint or the timing of the complaint, most of the time you have a little bit of time. You, know, you don't have to rush in there and do any significant intervention right off the bat. You know, with chemical ocular injuries, obviously you need to irrigate those people right away and assess them and assess ABCs sort of simultaneously simultaneously while you're doing that. But there's really the, the vast majority of things, except maybe for a neurologic complaint, like where you've got a ocular manifestation of a stroke, most, most things aren't really all that time sensitive other than maybe a few traumatic ocular emergencies and then maybe ocular complaints secondary to, to like an ischemic stroke or, or like a brainstem stroke, something like that. So no, there's really not anything I think that when you go and approach a patient where you have to be terribly worried about, you know, some intervention or time sensitive thing or some scary thing that you're looking at, uh, there's only really a few of those things that have time sensitive uh, intervention. You have to have some type of time sensitive recognition or intervention. Um, but the majority of them, you can usually, you know, take your time, take a history and physical and assess them, try to figure out what's going on. And obviously based off of a systematic approach that you take to it with your history and physical, hopefully you can come to a fairly accurate diagnosis and then figure out, you know, how they need to be treated if you need to get ophthalmology on board or, or what. Cool. Thank you. For our students who are listening to this and are newer to eye complaints, could you just briefly go over what are the main time-sensitive complaints that they should go grab their attending immediately? So the traumatic ones are going to be, you know, somebody who's got uh, orbital compartment syndrome. Because when, when somebody actually develops uh, a true orbital compartment syndrome, usually in a healthy eye, they've got maybe one to two hours before they're going to have permanent vision loss um, if you don't intervene with the canthotomy and cantholysis. The second thing from a traumatic aspect would be chemical ocular injuries. And so those, pe- those patients need immediate irrigation if, if uh, and they need it in the department, whether they've irrigated the, at, at home or not or at, on the job site or not. From a medical perspective, probably just, again, like I mentioned before, just the only thing that m- you might need to address right in, you know, just immediately would be someone who comes in with ocular manifestations of a stroke. So those, those probably are the, the main ones. You know, people that come in with retinal detachments, yes, it's, it's important to recognize those and get them evaluated by ophthalmology as soon as you possibly can. But those things are not, don't require intervention in minutes and really even hours. Usually those are repaired within, you know, um, half days to days. Other things like, for example, like an anterior ischemic optic neuropathy with someone who's got, you know, giant cell arteritis, temporal arteritis, 
even if you don't, you know, intervene within an hour or two, it's probably not going to change their outcomes. But recognizing it obviously is important so that you can, you know, get them the appropriate treatment for it. So no, there's not, I don't think there's a lot of things that present to the emergency department that have, uh, that are really, really important to have a time sensitive recognition or intervention uh, associated with it. There are a few, obviously, but the majority of them that you're, that, you know, a medical student is going to walk into a room and evaluate or a resident. Uh, most of the things you can, you know, take your time, you know, be calm about it, mm-hmm. be systematic about it, and hopefully come to the right conclusion. Excellent. Thank you so much. That was very, very succinct. I actually wanted to talk about intraocular pressure. So for most patients that we come in, we try to get an IOP on them. And from my understanding, I usually probably don't want to do it for a globe rupture. But are there any other times where you may not want to check your IOP or it's contraindicated? And as a follow-up, what's your cutoff for an IOP before we have to get ophthalmology on board? That's a great question. I think uh, globe rupture is probably the only time when you don't want to be applying pressure to the eye. There are several different types of tonometers available to people now, and, and you know, you're going to be limited on based off of what you have in your department to use. If you have a tonal pen, those typically tend to apply a fair amount of pressure as you're checking the, the intraocular pressure. And so uh, if, you, if you either suspect or know the patient has a globe rupture, you don't want to use the, like a tonal pen or a similar device to check their intraocular pressure just because you, know, you may worsen the underlying problem, push more aqueous out of the eye, and collapse the eye even more. And I don't have any stock in this company, <laughs> um, okay. but with the, the tonometer that we use in our department is called the eye care tonometer. And uh, essentially what it is, is just a filament attached to the tonometer with a teeny little ball on the end. And when you use it and use it right, it doesn't really apply a significant amount of pressure. So, I mean, if they've got aqueous pouring out of their eye and you know they have a globe rupture, you don't even need to use that. But if you aren't sure, you don't see an obvious full thickness defect and you don't know whether they have a globe rupture, I think it's fairly safe for you to use that particular tonometer because it just doesn't apply a ton of pressure to the eye. You know, if a patient has a, a recent history of particularly blunt trauma uh, and you're assessing uh, whether they have a globe rupture or some other uh, pathology associated with the trauma, in people who don't have a globe rupture but just have a traumatic iritis, if you do check their eye pressures, typically the pressure is going to be lower in the affected eye than it will be in the other eye. Uh, and so just because they have a lower intraocular pressure when you're comparing the two eyes doesn't necessarily mean they have a globe rupture. You just have to keep that on your differential. It's important to do. You know, so, so that as a part of an assessment, I think the eye care tonometer is, is safe to use even in probably in F, uh, issues or even in when it comes to a globe rupture. But again, if they have an obvious globe rupture, you don't need to do that. As far as, uh, as a cutoff for intraocular pressure, to me, it all is based off of symptoms. So if a, if a patient presents with symptoms consistent with the elevated intraocular pressure, I don't know if there's real, there really is a cutoff. Uh, because you can see people who have like an acute angle, like a narrow angle glaucoma or angle closure glaucoma, who have pressures, you know, in maybe the low 40s. But there's also people who come in that have known either untreated or treated open angle glaucoma, who, if they've not been using their drops, may have pressures in the 30s, maybe low 40s, and they may not have any symptoms of it. You know, just if you're just checking them for whatever reason, if they come in for another eye complaint, you know, they may have elevated intraocular pressures, but they, it may not actually be causing any acute issue. But if somebody comes in and they have boring eye pain with hazy, cloudy vision that just started before they came into the emergency department, and they've got, you know, that mid-dilated fixed pupil, 
Uh, they've got a shallow anterior chamber when you're looking at them with a slit lamp, and then you anticipate or suspect that they have an acute angle closure attack, and you check their eye pressures, and it's upper 30s, 40s, 50s. Regardless of what the pressure is, those are the patients you need to start on pressure-lowering drops and call ophthalmology right away because that's an entity that can cause permanent vision loss if it's not dealt with appropriately. Great. Thank you. I had one last question for you, and it's mostly just because I like to do procedures, and I think most emergency physicians like to do procedures. And one of the procedures we do for eye complaints is removing foreign bodies. And uh, usually I'll either use a Q-tip that I'll dip in a little bit of saline and try to do it that way, and if not, then I guess I'll go to the TB needle or get a a drill. But are there any times when you think that we probably shouldn't get the foreign body out and get ophthalmology involved? Yeah, so you, you make a, a couple of really good points. So um, something that I try to train our residents and medical students when they are trying to take foreign bodies out is when you use a, a dry cotton-tipped applicator, it doesn't work as well as if it's wet. So like you mentioned, get it wet with something. Get it wet with saline. Get it wet with like your preparacane or tetracaine drops, whatever you're numbing the eye up with. Uh, and obviously that's the first step too is make sure you numb the patient's eye before right. you start you know poking around it and prodding them. But yeah, so wet the cotton tip applicator because it just works better. It makes it a little stickier, and so it makes it uh, a little bit easier for you to get remove those superficial foreign bodies. Relating to the, you know, directly answering the question, there's really not a foreign body that I wouldn't consider removing. You know, if it's really, really deep and you're concerned uh, for, you know, potentially a, a full thickness injury, then that may be one that you may not want to deal with. Um, if you're able to assess that with your like a, a good slit lamp exam, but no, there, I don't think there's really any uh, foreign body that I wouldn't want you know one of our colleagues to remove, even a foreign body in the central cornea. I think those are fairly I think those are fair game for us, especially if they're fairly superficial, uh, especially in the, the metallic ones, because the sooner you get those removed, the lesser of a rustering you're going to have remain remaining behind. Um, and probably it will improve visual outcomes going forward for them if they, because those can scar if they're deep, they'll scar the, the anterior stroma if they're deep enough. Uh, they may have a little bit of residual restoring there as well, especially if the restoring is, is a substantial one. And of course, the sooner you get the, the metallic foreign body out of the eye, the less of a restoring is going to be left behind. And that brings me to sort of, you know, talking about how to, how to approach those and getting them follow up. You know, we, we've always wanted to get aggressive with, you know, removing the restoring after we remove the foreign body, but really it's not terribly important for us to do a great job of removing the restoring, especially if the foreign body's been there in just a very short period of time. The reason why is that as the, the corneal epithelium sort of softens up over the day or two after that we remove the foreign body, it actually makes it easier for the restoring to be removed and, and the eye will start to remove it in a way. It'll start removing, sort of moving that restoring forward. Uh, and again, the, the epithelium will soften up. And so if you get them follow up in a day or two with your ophthalmologist, it'll make their ophthalmologist job a little bit easier to remove that residual restoring. Uh, and so I think that's the approach. You don't necessarily have to get really, really aggressive trying to remove all the rust at the initial visit when you take the foreign body out. You can usually just, you know, get the foreign body out. If there's some superficial restoring that's easy for you to remove, go ahead and remove that. But after that, just get them appropriate follow-up, timely follow-up with ophthalmology, and they can finish the job. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Paddock. I think that was excellent advice for all new students going into doing their emergency aways and sub-internships. And uh, for residents going forward, especially myself as going to be a new resident, I think these are really, really great tips. And uh, I think my patients are going to be very grateful for that. For everyone else, I want you to look out for other podcasts that are going to be going out at the Scientific Assembly. They're going to be great topics, and I'm sure you're going to learn a lot. 
Thank you, Dr. Pat, for joining us today, and we'll talk to you guys soon. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about AEM RSA, visit the website at www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.